This morning, we continue to hear the word of God as he speaks to us from the book of Isaiah. And the text from Isaiah will, will serve as our call to worship this morning, uh, as God calls us to worship him as the one true God and the king over all the earth. So would you join me as we begin in prayer and then hear the word of the Lord. Our great and holy God, we come before you now as the people that you have redeemed through your promised and beloved son, Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you that you have declared Jesus to be the king who rules over all the earth with justice and righteousness. We praise you that you have moved us out of the kingdom of darkness and into Christ's kingdom of marvelous light. Help us to learn to trust you today, God, as our good and great king. Not a people who trust in the strength of men or the ideas of this world, but who have given our hearts and our minds and our lives fully over to you and your ways, in your goodness, in your righteousness, and in your holiness. Give us ears to hear you speak today to us, God, through the preaching of your word. And may our prayers and our songs and our response be a fragrant offering of praise and worship offered to you today in spirit and truth. For to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Would you please turn in your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 6. I'll be reading from the CSB version this morning, and we'll be reading together sections from Isaiah chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. Chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, 
until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and Yahweh drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Chapter 7. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king Rezin and Israel's king Pekah, son of Remaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of the people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. Yahweh said to Isaiah, go with your son Sha'ir Yashuv to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aaron and the son of Remaliah. This is what the Lord Yahweh says. It will not happen. It will not occur. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Then Yahweh again spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign from Yahweh your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens, but Ahaz replied, I will not ask, I will not test Yahweh. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. Yahweh will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Chapter 8. Then I was intimate with the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Yahweh said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows to call father or mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. Yahweh spoke to me again. Because these people rejected the slowly flowing water of Shiloh, and rejoiced with Rezin and the son of Remaliah, the Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will pour into Judah, flood over it and sweep through, reaching up to the neck and its flooded banks will fill your entire land, Emmanuel. Band together, people, and be broken. Pay attention all you distant lands. Devise a plan, it will fail. Make a prediction, it will not happen. For God is with us. For this is what Yahweh said to me with great power to keep me from going the way of this people. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. 
you are to regard only Yahweh of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Chapter 9. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and every bloodied garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will accomplish it. This, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, good morning. My name's Matt Quintana. I'm the pastoral intern here. It's a pleasure to be with you all. I'm so glad to see your faces. And uh, as Greg has said before, it feels like every week I'm seeing people that I haven't seen in so long. And it's so good to gather in person. And I'm excited this morning as we're back in the book of Isaiah, um, as Sherry just read quite extensively. If you haven't turned there already, turn to Isaiah 6. You're going to want to follow along. We're going to be in Isaiah 6 through the beginning of chapter 9. There's not going to be anything on the screen. So unless you just want to trust me, you're going to want to follow along and make sure that I, uh, I'm not just making things up. Um, but I'm super excited about this, this passage this morning. As we've already heard, there are so many verses and elements in this text that are well known to us. If you've grown up in the church, if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, you've heard these passages, the call and commission of Isaiah, the uh, vision that he has of the Lord in his throne room. Holy, holy, holy. You've heard the uh, prophecy about the virgin who will give birth to this child who will be named Emmanuel. You've, you've heard about the people who have walked in darkness and been called out into the light. And so as we approach this text, it's exciting, it's rich, it's beautiful, and yet at the same time, it is so dense. There's so much here, I, um, more than I think I've ever felt preaching before, I just feel burdened with, how do I even begin to say anything about, about the riches of what is contained here? And so, uh, this morning, I want to try and just 
scratch the surface of what this text contains and, and shows us about the glory of the God we worship and his Christ. And I hope that throughout the rest of the week, um, maybe you'll continue reflecting on these chapters and spend some time diving into them yourselves because they're so, so good. So let's open with prayer and then we'll dive right in. Father, you are so kind and gracious to us and one of your many gifts that we receive undeservingly yet in appreciation is your word, which is so, so good for providing us what we need to grow in godliness, to make wise and, and godly decisions, to fill us with hope and encouragement and a perspective on this world and on our lives that is true. And so we trust this morning that you will open up your word to us, that you will uh, unveil the riches that you have in the book of Isaiah. And I pray that you'd speak through me those glories and truths that you inspired in the text this morning. So we pray for your spirit's help and we trust that you will be with us as you are Emmanuel our God, and we are your people. Amen. Before we start in chapter 6, let me real quick explain what I hope to do as we, we go through the text this morning, just because there's, again, so much here. So we're covering a lot of ground, so I want to first kind of walk through the few chapters that we're looking at kind of go section by section, see what are some of the main ideas, the main points being emphasized here, how are they threaded together in this part of the book. And then I want to circle back around once we've done that, and I want to think about how do we respond to a text like this? How do we apply a text like this in our lives today? Uh, as we'll see this morning, and as you've maybe already felt in the book of Isaiah, there's so much going on. It's uh, judgment, then hope, then Messiah, then wrath, then poetry, then narrative, and it's only in one chapter. And then you get to the next chapter, and it's like you're trying to drink from a fire hose, and what are we to do with this? How, how do I respond to this in my own life? And so once we've gone through the text, we'll circle back around and think about how we apply and live out these truths. And then I want to end by thinking about how these really well-known and key texts connect with the rest of the scriptures, specifically as Christians, those who profess faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Um, how have those promises been realized and actualized in Christ? So does it sound good? You guys ready? All right, you get open your Bibles, Isaiah 6. All right, well, starting Isaiah 6, we have moved through the first five chapters, and we're actually in the middle of a unit that, that kind of goes from chapters 5 through 10. And in the middle here, we have this section where we find some stories, some narratives, and then there's poetry mixed back in with it, and these prophetic oracles or messages that are recorded. And so as we go through this section, we'll find that it's really in the middle of, again, these chapters 5 through 10, and there's some important hinges that really connect the beginning of the book with the following chapters. And so these few 
passages we're looking at become key for setting up some themes and ideas that are going to be brought out, not only in the next few chapters, but in the rest of the book. And so, as we get into Isaiah 6, it begins with this historical note, in the year that King Uzziah died. And if you remember back to chapter 1, it mentioned uh, when Isaiah was giving these prophecies in what context during the reign of what kings. And so it begins by kind of cluing us in there into the context of what is going on. And by doing that, it looks backwards. And yet we also look forwards because it's this period of transition. The king has died. The human king, that is. Isaiah now sees the true king. And what we get in chapter 6 is this glorious vision of the enthroned sovereign Lord who rules the universe and has all in submission to him. So 6.1, Isaiah sees the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. The hem of his temple is filling every, everything that he can see. He's laid down prostrate and all he sees is his feet and his robe there's these creatures that exist in God's presence to worship him and praise him, and they fly around proclaiming holy, holy, holy. This content is really fitting when we think about the last couple of chapters where really the main point of chapters two through four has been that humans are proud and arrogant and need to be humbled and Yahweh is worthy and holy and righteous, and he is exalted. And so in this vision, Isaiah sees the Lord as he really is. He sees him high and exalted. No arrogance of man can thwart his true reality, his true being. And so holy, holy, holy. If you've been a Christian, you've heard this word, you've heard holy, you maybe have heard the song, which we'll be singing later today. What does holy mean? This word is, is very important in the book of Isaiah, more than anywhere else in the Bible. Isaiah refers to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. It's a title that he likes to use for God. When it says holy three times, it's doing it for emphasis. It emphasizes it more uh, than any other attribute. Nowhere else is God referred to as anything three times. It's, it's holy. He's holy, holy, holy. What does that mean, though? Is it uh, something to do with his moral purity? Is it just saying that he is separate or apart from all evil? These things are included in what it means for God to be holy, but the basic meaning of holy is devoted or consecrated. So in his very essence, this Yahweh who Isaiah sees is holy. He is devoted. He is consecrated. Throughout the scriptures, his defining characteristic is not his love. It's not his wrath. It's not his justice. It's his holiness. And so as holy... We see that this God is the one and only sovereign. He's the one and only Lord. At the very center of his being, he is holy. 
He sets the standard for holiness. He sets the bar. Holiness is experienced through him. And this holiness, it's, it's like a fire. It's both life-giving and enriching, and yet at the same time, it is also dangerous. We'll see throughout the book of Isaiah that Yahweh is holy. He is completely, utterly devoted. Devoted to what? Well, holiness in Scripture operates within the context of covenant relationships. God is holy in relation with his covenant people. It expresses his complete commitment. And so God is completely dedicated to his covenant relationships, to his mercy, to his love, to his righteousness. He's not simply separate from all or other or morally pure, but in his relationships, he is pure and completely devoted to who he is as God, the just, righteous, gracious, and faithful covenant-keeping creator. But not only is he holy in and of itself, he makes things holy as the standard of holiness. He consecrates people, places, times, and things. When someone or something is holy, it means that they belong to God completely and fully. And that's what we see here in the rest of chapter 6. The holy Lord makes holy his servant Isaiah. Isaiah's response to being in his presence is this, uh, this awareness of his condition as sinful and of human. Right? He responds in a, a very humble way as he pronounces woe upon himself. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've seen the king. And in order to counter this, then what the Lord does is commission one of his servants, one of these fiery angels, a seraphim, to grab a coal and touch it to, uh, to Isaiah's lips and to purify him through this fire. And by this, Isaiah becomes holy. This process where the unholy, the un righteous is made to be saved and righteous through this burning becomes paradigmatic for the rest of the book. So what we've seen happen to Isaiah is what we'll see happen to all of Israel. We've already seen this at a couple points in Isaiah, that God is going to judge his people who are sinful, who are rebellious, who are stubborn, and out of this judgment, it will be like a refining fire that this remnant is purified and saved. We see this in the rest of chapter 6 when the Lord commissions Isaiah to go to his people and to proclaim his message. And yet, this message is very pointed. This message is actually going to harden their hearts. Isaiah, from the very beginning here, is called to a failed ministry. No one's going to listen to him. Quite the opposite, in fact, he is going to harden these people by his message. And what we see here might sound confusing. It might sound, might sound uncharacteristic of God, right? That he would 
commission someone to make it so these people don't respond in faith. And we'll see throughout the rest of this text today, and we've already seen in chapter 5, that this response, this hardening, is due to the fact that his people have become so rebellious, there is no other choice but for him to burn down the vineyard, as chapter 5 says, and to then re uh, refine and build this remnant that responds in faith and trust to him. And so in the following verses, in, in verse 11, when Isaiah asks how long he must carry out this, this mission, the Lord replies, until city lies in ruin without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and Yahweh drives the people far away, Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth of the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. And so this last part here becomes very important. There's going to be a tenth, it says, left. A tenth that remains after this initial judgment and desolation. And that small group will then be purged. It will be burned, it will be judged, and from that, this holy seed, verse 13, emerges. God is going to, with his people, refine them, refine them some more to create a people that are truly committed and holy to him. And this holy seed, this concept becomes very important for the rest of the book, the idea of a seed, of an offspring that began in Genesis 3 and is now continued. We've seen this already in chapter 4, that there will be a branch, a messianic ruler, an offspring of David who will lead this other group of people who believe in Yahweh and who trust in him, and they are emerging as holy. And so, Keep again, again, keep in mind this holy seed that will emerge after this purifying judgment. And with that, we move to chapter 7, which begins with another one of these historical markers. This now takes place during another reign of another king, Ahaz, son of Jotham. Isaiah's commission to go and uh, essentially encourage Ahaz to trust in the Lord in verses 1 and 2, we read about this situation in which the northern kingdom of Israel is trying to band together with the king of Syria in order to capture and destroy Jerusalem. It's caused this great fear. I love how verse 2 describes it. It says, when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. And so facing the prospect of being captured and demolished, Ahaz has a choice. Is he going to trust in the Lord as the one who will deliver? Or is he going to try and trust in man to weasel his way out of this? We've seen in chapters 2 through 4 that humans consistently puff themselves up and trust in their own doing rather than trusting in the exalted king. And so here... Yahweh presents an opportunity for him to trust, for him to respond in faith. He commissions, 
Missions Isaiah. And verse 9 is very important, where it says explicitly, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This will be the outcome. Yahweh has shown he is in control. He can do whatever he wants. This threat to the kingdom of Judah, they will do nothing unless the Lord allows it. He says it will not happen. It will not occur. It only happens if he says so. And so he calls Ahaz to stand firm in his faith or else he will not stand at all. He uses this, this really interesting word play, this uh, word in Hebrew. It's actually the, the word amen, from which we get the word amen, and it means to be firm. And so he says, if you do not stand firm, it, mean, it means to, to have faith, to trust. And then he uses another variation of the word to say, you will not stand at all. And so if you do not have faith, you will not be firm, you will not stand, you will fall. And so... Then the Lord gives him another opportunity. He presents him with uh, almost like a genie in, a, in the bottle where you ask for whatever you want, right? He says, uh, not, not that Yahweh is a genie in the bottle. It's a, maybe not a, not a good analogy. But he says, ask for whatever you want. Ask for a sign. Ask for something that you will receive and say, there, there it is. There's a pledge that you will come through. There's a pledge that you will save the city. The Lord gives him free reign. He says, whatever you want, ask for it. It can be as high as uh, heaven or as deep as Sheol. And Ahaz, in this really um, pious uh, arrogance, says, no, no, I'm not going to put you to the test, Lord. I'm not going to ask for anything. This might seem like maybe the right response. It might seem like he is being uh, righteous, and yet it actually rings hollow because he chooses not to side with the Lord. And this becomes very clear if we think about the larger contexts that Scripture gives us. In 2 Kings 16, Ahaz sends messengers to Assyria, and what he really wants is help from Assyria, not help from the Lord. And so Isaiah 6 is, is meant to show us that his rejection of the Lord here, his failure to ask for a sign, results in his eventual destruction. It's a result of this hardening that Isaiah had been commissioned on. And so what follows is what is uh, one of those verses in this passage that is, is so well known, right? In 7.14, Isaiah responds, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. There's going to be this child who is born from a virgin, and this will be a sign for Ahaz. The sign that he didn't ask for, and because it's not one that he asked for, where he was to ask for one that is, is going to um, act a, a, as a, a sign of blessing and a sign of promise, this sign of Emmanuel, of this son to be born, is going to serve two functions. This child who's going to be born will play a double role of displaying judgment for Ahaz and those who do not believe, but blessing for those who do trust in the Lord. And we see that in the rest of chapter 7, where 
this period described of the land being desolate again, that is going to be uh, this sign of cursing, right? The sign that they have rebelled and Yahweh has left them hardened. They are going to be refined and face this judgment. Ahaz will experience God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. He will experience God with us in this ironic sense where he is experiencing this judgment uh, from the Lord. But there will also be a sense in which it is a sign of blessing. In verse 16 and 15, we see that this, uh, living, uh, that this living symbol, that is the sun, will lead to this time of blessing where there's, there's food, there's curds and honey, there's milk and honey. And so at the same time, we have these two, these two uh, things in tension, right? This, this blessing and cursing that is dependent on faith and trust. The rest of chapter 17 plays that out, and as we move into chapter 8, what we find are some more small units that end up continuing what we've seen with Ahaz, who has responded not in faith, but in distrust, who's put his trust in man and armies. And so the Lord pronounces that this uh, this plan that Ahaz has enacted, where he's going to try and get help from Assyria, will actually come back on his own head and result in his certain doom. In chapter 8, verse 5, Yahweh speaks, Because these people rejected the slowly flowing water of Shiloh and rejoiced with Rezin and the son of Remaliah, the Lord will certainly bring against them the mighty rushing water of the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, and all of his glory. So because Ahaz and Israel have failed to trust that Yahweh will come through, failed to trust that he will provide, the Lord is going to bring this judgment that overflows, that spills over all the land, that engulfs all of them. And in the midst of it, though, in verse 8, we find something interesting. It will pour into Judah, flood over it, and sweep through, reaching up to the neck, and its flooded blanks, flooded banks will fill your entire land. Emmanuel. There's that name again, this child, Emmanuel. And yet it occurs here in this context of the Assyrians going to wipe out the city and it's called your land, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, this child, is addressed. He's the one who appears out of nowhere here. Your land will face the consequence of this judgment. We don't get this fully explained here, but now we have a more developed portrait of this child, Emmanuel. He's the leader of the land. He's going to be affected by the Assyrian onslaught, apparently. And we get this again in verse 10, where the nations are called upon to try and do what they can to rebel and um, defeat Yahweh, and yet their plans will fail. Make a prediction. It will not happen, for God is with us. This now becomes the reason for which the plans of other nations ultimately are thwarted. Though God allows them to do what he wants for a period of time, they will fail ultimately because Emmanuel, God, is with us. And so this child, 
that has been introduced in chapter 7 is now developed a bit further. And as we get into chapter 9, uh, we find really the, the, further, uh, the, the most amazing development in this unit we've looked at. Let's look at, look at chapter 9. And I want to read this again because it's, it's just so good. We've already read, uh, read it. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoice at harvest time, as when, uh, and, and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. And now we get these three reasons why why there's this time of rejoicing. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. For every trampling boot of battle will be burned, destroyed. Yahweh's going to destroy their oppressors and he's going to put an end to the need to fight. And then verse six, the climactic reason why they will rejoice is for a child will be born for us. A son will be given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of Israel, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh of armies will accomplish this. But when, when is this going to happen? If you look at the beginning of chapter 9, it compares these two times. There's going to be the former times where judgment occurred and then the future in which honor will come upon the land. This connects with these uh, periods we've already seen in the book. So if you, if you follow what has been occurring so far in chapter 2, it said, in the latter days or in the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be established and there will be this time of peace and this kingdom that extends out from Yahweh's dwelling to the earth. Then in chapter 4, it says again, on that day, the branch, the Messiah, will lead this redeemed people in Zion, in God's dwelling place, and they will experience his holiness and his glory and his, his grace. And here again, we have more... Uh, language that is speaking of this future time in which the Messiah will come, he will rule, he will lead his people, and this becomes the, the hope for those people who are waiting, waiting, facing the hardship of, of judgment and of even as they experience what is not Yahweh's direct judgment, as they, they wait in hope, it says they are walking in darkness. But at one point in the future, he will bring honor to the land, and these people who are walking in darkness will see a great light because this messianic king will lead them. And so here in chapter 9, it develops the child introduced in chapter 7, the Emmanuel who was continued to be brought up in chapter 8, now we see that he is going to be a son who rules 
who is a wonderful counselor. He works these mighty wonders. He's a mighty God. It says he's mighty God. This is amazing because this child is divine. He is God himself. He's the eternal father, and by that it means not that he is, not that the son is the father in a Trinitarian sense where how are the two different? No, it really means something like he's the father of eternity. He controls the time from the end to the beginning. He's in control of the age to come. And he, of course, is the prince of peace, the one who brings about this shalom, this great peace. It uses this language that originated with the covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7, and it develops it in a way that results in this full picture, uh, this, this, this more full picture of Emmanuel, right, of, of the Emmanuel child. The Emmanuel child is interpreted for us in the book itself. He's the messianic king whose promised coming brought hope not only for the remnant who would survive the Assyrian onslaught, but also he's this future promised savior who will deliver the peoples and establish an eternal rule in the last days or in the end, uh, in the future. And so the sign for Ahaz has now developed into the hope of his replacement and for all the sorry kings of Judah that have ruled. The hardening and destruction of Israel that we saw in chapter 6 is actually a part of this divine plan that God has for her deliverance. It's not simply wishful thinking, but rather it's embedded in God's eternal plan for his people and for all nations. And so as we reach the end of this section, again, I want to circle back and do this kind of quickly since it took longer than I expected to get, get through that. Um, but how, how do we respond? How do we, how do we think about living out these ideas? There's a lot here. There's so much that we could um, think about more or things that are confusing, that don't make sense. What do, we, what do we do? I think that there are pieces here that as we look at the way the book is brought together as we look at the way in which these things are lined up and the threads that connect them, we not only see that the author of this book is, is communicating something to us as, as readers and hearers, but that he also wants us to do something in response. And so there's four, four things that I think we can really see rise to the surface in these few chapters. And so I want to uh, distill these into, into four exhortations, four things that we can walk away with. And so, how do, how do you respond? One, trust in Yahweh alone. Trust in Yahweh alone. It's so clear in these chapters that the difference between trusting in Yahweh and trusting in human power um, is huge. It leads either to blessing or destruction. It leads either to life or death. It leads either to walking in darkness or walking in in light, and so trust in the Lord alone. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Trust in the Lord who is in control, who is the one king over all, who is enthroned over the cosmos for all of eternity. Trust in the Lord. Two, be obedient. 
be obedient like Isaiah and his faithful followers, as we see in his calling, in his response to God's commission, in going to the king, in displaying these signs, in um, the naming of his children, right? Isaiah is obedient. He responds correctly to God. Ahaz, though, is unfaithful. Uh, he is so opposite of what we should do. And so, as we look at the, the way in which the uh, text here portrays Ahaz and those who do not trust in the Lord, we should aim to do the opposite, to be obedient, to trust in God rather than this world and the powers that uh, might seem to be in control. Three, hope in Yahweh's promises. So trust, obey, hope. Hope in the great promises that are established here. There's the promise that God, after judgment, will restore and save. The promise that he will bring about this messianic ruler and that there will be this age in which peace and righteousness and justice are established from now on and forever. And so hope in those promises. And then four, flowing from that, that hope and joy that we have, we rejoice in the fact that these things are already in part realized in Christ and will only become more and more true until the one day when God restores all creation for all eternity and God is with us forever. And so we trust, we obey, we hope, and we currently can rejoice in the Christ who is Emmanuel, who is the child who was born, who is the Son of God himself, and we rejoice like those described in chapter 9. We rejoice in the Lord. This is so clear um, in, in how the New Testament ends up picking up these threads established in Isaiah 6 through 9. And um, I don't have time to go through all the ways in which we find these promises fill, fulfilled and picked up in the New Testament. But uh, it's, it's all over the place. Isaiah 6 um, in John 12, Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, Acts 28, Isaiah 7, and Isaiah 8 are quoted in Matthew 1. Isaiah 9 is quoted in Matthew 4 and in 1 Peter 2. Isaiah 9, 6 is referenced in Luke 1, 32. And so these promises find their realization in Jesus the Messiah. And I want to close with this one text from Luke 2 where Jesus is being presented at the temple his parents are in obedience to the law, taking him to the temple. And in Luke 2, 28, it reads, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When Simeon took him up in his arms... He praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. 
You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And so as Christians, we, as we behold our Christ, can respond in the same way. Our eyes have seen salvation. Our eyes have experienced salvation. The salvation promised here in Isaiah, we have received it, and so we can rejoice. So again, trust, obey, hope, and rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, you are holy, holy, holy. You are gracious and kind and loving. You are faithful. You are powerful. Would you help us to trust in you above all else? Would we trust not in ourselves? Would we trust not in this world? Would our hope and our Joy be in you and in your Son, Jesus Emmanuel. We pray that you would help us. Amen.